Thank you for tuning in to Highly Functional under the umbrella of Hardwater One. This is Dr. Brianne Shelman-Brown, the Functional Athletic Specialist. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. Today we have Chris Johnson with us, who is very well known in the running world. And uh, we're going to dive in today on things that contribute to injuries in uh, specifically runners, athletes in general, but specifically runners, uh, just because so many things are neglected and uh, contribute to these injuries. So we're going to talk to the specialist of this and get some great ideas on what we can do for it. Chris, welcome. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. It's my pleasure. I love all the content you put out and I love your, your different courses that you have. So I definitely wanted to get you on here. Well, it's, uh, it's always fun and a privilege to be able to talk about running. And, uh, you know, it, I want to first just start by saying it seems like you've been busy. You know, I, I see these podcasts coming out left and right, so good on you. Um, it's uh, a lot of time and energy, but, you know, it's fun, you know, and people forget that. So It's a lot of fun. And, and you know, it's just fun to talk to different people and get new ideas, that new theories that you didn't, hadn't thought of. And so it's good education for me, too, as I go throughout this. So what do you want to talk about today? So let's get into first, like just common injuries you do see. Uh, obviously, we can see anything from head to toe when it comes to any athlete or runner, but uh, what are kind of maybe the top three injuries that you see on a regular basis with your runners? Uh, I think it mirrors, you know, some of the stuff that's been put out by like Jack Town and his group, um, you know, obviously other researchers, but, you know, with most recreational uh, distance runners who are going to be the lion's share of the folks that are seeking our services. Um, it's generally, you know, pain or pathology affecting the knee and distal. And that's something I, I really drive home when I teach. And just because if someone walks in and they're telling you that they have some, you know, symptoms that jive with patellofemoral complaints, um, maybe they have, you know, uh, calf muscle pain or an Achilles tendon related issue, Achilles tendon, you have to be careful because um, a lot of performance runners get that. But, you know, you should be thinking as a clinician or practitioner that this is a recreational distance runner, you know. Um, you know, and it's important to contrast that with performance-based runners who are going to be running um, more brisk, and the forces tend to shift upstream. That's why we see, you know, uh, hamstring strains. We see, you know, proximal hamstring tendinopathy. Again, that can strike a recreational distance runner, but um, a lot of the times, you know, just – the region that people end up dealing with injuries and pain should start getting our gears, uh, getting our gears grinding to, to think, okay, this person is likely this uh, coming from this demographic. So, so yeah, I would say patella, I see a lot of, um, patellofemoral, uh, complaints. Um, you know, I'll see lower limb tendon issues, um, involving the Achilles, you know, I'll see a lot of, uh, bone stress injuries, um, in adolescent female runners. Um, I'll see a lot of calf strains and master's level male runners. So, you know, predictable stuff at day's end. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. When you encounter these athletes that are injured, whether it just be a nagging ache that they think they can run through or something that totally changes their gait, what are you telling them as far as should they be running? Do you tell them full rest? What's the, t what kind of is your standard? Well, I, I try to give people a framework to approach their decision making. And I, and I also, um, I think it's really important to prepare runners, you know, for the fact that they're going to be dealing with some niggles and aches and pains. I mean, there was a study in the International Journal that, you know, looked at 
elite level runners and you know a good percentage of them I want to say around 25% were reporting pain at the start at the starting line you know so I think that one of the worst things that we can do is engender this notion that you're going to just you know be running around you know carefree and never have to deal with injuries or you know aches or pains that's that goes hand in hand um, so and I obviously that could be accentuated a little bit with someone who's a more novice or green runner um, versus sort of, you know, a more seasoned runner who's probably a little bit desensitized to things. Um, but I think when you, when you provide or you educate, which we're starting to see the role of education, all these manuscripts that are coming out, you say, look, I'm okay with you having low level pain provided that it's stable. Um, but if you get to a point where it's progressively getting worse, especially if it's starting to lead to altered mechanics, you know, I would, I would resort to walking. All right. Not to say you can't try to pick up running again, but during that same session, but if you do, and you still have this pattern where it's progressively getting worse, and then you start, you know, having a hitch in your giddy up or altered mechanics, you have to pull the plug on that workout because you're probably only going to delay, uh, an otherwise timely recovery. So you know, in, in Dr. Silbernagel has put out this pain monitoring model. Um, you know, she's done a lot of work on the Achilles tendon and, you know, she'll say zero to two or three, you know, green light. Um, she says zero to two green light, you know, um, I want to say three, three-ish uh, yellow light. And once you start getting to, well, three to five yellow light and above five red light, I think that's helpful, but, you know, pain's a very subjective thing. So, I think you have to say what is acceptable to you as the athlete, you know, um, and along those lines too, I mean, what do we see in working with runners? We see a lot of bone stress injuries and um, tendon related complaints and dysfunction. So, you know, you have to also realize that with tendons that oftentimes they can warm up. So if you say, look, you know, if you have some pain, that's okay. You know, how does it change over the course of your run? Sometimes runners will say, well, it starts to improve. And you should be thinking, ding, 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 this is a tendon-related issue. Mm -hmm. you know? um, with bone stress injuries, they tend to get worse with repetitive loading. So there's so much information that we can get, but I think it's, it's, stay, it's having very clear communication lines with the runner and making sure that they can actually verbalize that back. So you, know, you can teach them a, the pain monitoring model, you can teach them a classification system, you know, have that discussion of what's acceptable versus not acceptable, and being very comfortable pulling the plug in the context of altered mechanics, unless you're racing and you see the finish line. Um, so. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest thing is, um, you know, what I really stress with my athletes is once your mechanics change, like that's when you need to stop. Yeah. You know, everyone's can go through a little bit of ache and pain here and there, but once that mo those mechanics change, you're just going to cause something else. Yeah, you start loading uh, tissues that really haven't built up the, you know, the tolerance to it. So, um, but again, you know, runners sometimes, <laughs> you know, they're, they're not always uh, the most compliant bunch. No, definitely not. Yeah. Definitely not. So, for these distal injuries, uh, knee, ankle, foot stuff, what are... What areas are you addressing typically for treatment-wise, whether it be uh, – actually, let's go this direction first. Are you looking at more of a flexibility and mobility issue, or do you tend to see more of a strength stability issue? 
I, I rarely look at flexibility in runners. I, I think with performance runners are a little bit of a different beast. Um, so uh, I generally want to look at someone's tolerance to load, you know, and as I've mentioned before, running has very predictable performance demand. So, um, you know, I was in this runner zone group that I, that I run, which is a private Facebook group talking about this last night. So, you know, you have to say what, what's entailed with running, you know, so your bones have to attenuate shock. And I'm pulling this from Joe Cook's manuscript about um, the editorial that she did talking about capacity and tissue, but to run bones need to attenuate shock. Uh, tendons need to be able to store and release energy and muscles need to be able to tolerate uh, eccentric contractions. So your evaluation or, you know, screen should mirror those, you know? So, um, so again, let's take flexibility off the table. Very rarely do I think that that's something that, you know, needs to be addressed with runners. All right. Um, I do think that mobility, especially at the midfoot and talocrural joint is important. Um, and I also want to make sure that runners have a certain uh, amount of strength. And I also want to look at, you know, their postural stability or neuromuscular control, whatever fancy word you want to use, um, to single leg activities. All right. So, um, I think we need to, you know, say what's the entry point into loading this person and then how do we progressively load them? And what, what's the stimulus that we're trying to create? I mean, if it's a high school female runner who's dealing with a bone stress injury, you know, I would say that plyometric activity, when we can get them there, is going to be very important, all right? Um, someone who's dealing with a lower limb tendinopathy, we need to, you know, load the snot out of that through heavy, slow resistance with the goal that that's going to position them to express uh, energy storage and release and rate of force development. So, um, again, it's just really, I think, being competent with orthopedic examination, understand meaningful tests and assessments to, to perform, and then how to progressively nudge that person along. So, um, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it does. And, and it's right along the lines is kind of where I view it, too, more of a mobility in the foot and ankle area, typically in the stability area issue. Some more yeah. of the chain strength issue. And you can look at that. I mean, I say there's basically the stuff that you're looking at on the table and then there's the functional assessments. You know, I, I feel like I could teach, um, you know, functional assessments in literally my goal is to te teach my daughter how to screen a runner by the time she's five. Um, so <laughs> we'll see if that happens, but I just start and I'll say, okay, let's look at toe dexterity. Let's look at, you know, Go, go ahead and pick a leg to balance on. And I do that more to just say, what's their dominant side? Um, because a lot of the times runners tend to, you know, to get struck with issues on their less coordinated side. You mm -hmm. know? So if I say, hey, pick a side to balance on, and for me, I immediately go to my right. Most of my issues over the course of my athletic career have been on my left side. You know? um, so, and then you can look at, I don't look, you can look at a single leg squat. I, I like to look at a lateral step down. Um, I like to look at a unilateral bridge and straight leg raise. I like mm -hmm. to look at single leg calf raises um, with the goal of at least getting to 15, if not 25. Um, and then I'll look at, a, you know, a vertical jump or you could look at a counter jump and then um, double leg hopping to single leg hopping to do it at anterior, posterior, side to side. And, you know, obviously if they're running, you want to get a window into their running. 
I mean, it's the interpretation of those results that I think really is what good clinicians can synthesize and package into a program. Yeah, and I think the single leg and the dynamic is so important because obviously runners are only on one leg at a time. Yeah. And, I, and it's so forgotten that, you know, how much of a dynamic movement that is, even if they're just running on flat surface in the straight plane. I know you do a lot with the foot itself. Are you pretty much doing about equal as far as looking at foot control and hip control and strengthening both of those, or you kind of bias one more towards the other? Uh, I, I'm really interested in coordination between these different regions. Okay. So, you know, obviously, um, I want to make sure that whatever musculature is being called upon to run, that we just make sure it has adequate strength and capacity. So, you know, with, with most runners, I mean, the, the calf muscle complex and the soleus front and center, you know, um, you also have to have, you know, adequate quad strength. You need to have good hamstring strength. I mean, with with the Kenyan runners, there was a study by Kong and colleagues, and they show that you know the elite runners have a higher hamstring to quadriceps ratio. So, you know, you need to make sure that people have adequate hamstring strength, and you need to also have lateral hip strength and lumbopelvic hip control. So, you know, if there's deficits in any of these areas, just strengthen them. But mm -hmm. there's also, I think there there's a little bit more to it than just strength because most of the top runners in the world, sprinters aside, they're not the epitome of like, you know, these beasts of athletes. What they have is a lot of rhythm, coordination, and timing uh, mm -hmm. on top of having a, a certain level of strength. But I don't think people appreciate how strong some of the, uh, the elite runners are. You look at them and they look like, you know, they, they weigh as much a, as a feather, um, <laughs> but they are insanely strong. Um, and I think that gets lost in translation along the time, along the way. I would agree. How much do you think the traditional running shoes play into injuries? Oh, good question. <laughs> um, well, I mean, at some point we have to get on shoes. Um, so you're talking about pronation control at elevated cushion heel shoes. Just with how I... It drives me nuts with how much cushion some of these shoes have and how much of how much built up they are. And me personally, I feel it contributes to a lot more injuries than prevents them. Yeah, I, I guess I should preface this by saying that to me, shoes are a tertiary issue. I, I think that I try to really, you know, get runners thinking about more what they have control over mm -hmm. than equipment. With that said, it is an equipment need, generally speaking. Um, so. I think that the problem lies with, you know, this whole concept of risk homeostasis, meaning that, you know, it's like if you're playing football and someone has a helmet on, they're going to go into a tackle a little bit different or perhaps a little bit more aggressively uh, than say, you know, a rugby player in terms of head to head contact. Um, someone who's skiing or snowboarding may be a little bit more aggressive if they have a helmet on. So I think this applies to shoes and that people think that if they pay for this, you know, sexy technology that it's going to somehow safeguard against a running related issue. And there, there is research. I mean, Malice's group, you know, when you look at people who have an extreme pronatory foot, you know, I do think that there's a population that benefits from perhaps, um, you know, a medial posted shoe. But I, I think that 
these are outliers of groups. Um, you know, and I, I always tell people, stick with what feels comfortable. Um, you know, ride, ride, run in the, the lightest, fastest shoe that you can tolerate. Switch up your shoes because that reduces the risk of a running-related injury by 39%. That's mm -hmm. Malice's work, too. Um, and don't pinch the forefoot unless you're, you know, a sprinter because it's a performance shoe, you know. Um, so, yeah, I just, I run in all sorts of different types of shoes. So, um, but I, I think one of the problems that I see is it, with people who are running in, you know, more minimalist shoes, and that's a, you have to look at J.F. Escalade's uh, manuscript because that definition has gotten so bastardized. Mm -hmm. um, but what I see a lot of people getting into trouble with, and it's becoming less and less the case just because, you know, more quality information is getting out there is someone who wants to go to a zero drop shoe in terms of heel to toe differential that has a very stiff ankle or limited ankle dorsiflexion that also has a long ground contact time. That's where I see problems arise. Um, but generally, um, yeah, I, I try to de-emphasize shoes, but I always want to know what people think about shoes, what's worked for them, you know, what their occupational or vocational demands are and what shoes they're in then, you know, how much time are they spending barefoot, la, la, la. So. Yeah. You know, the minimalist shoes came out, you know, years ago with the barefoots and everything. And I think they just got such a bad reputation because people thought they could just go into them without any pre-strengthening, pre-mobility work and, you know, call, causes a whole slew of injuries. And so it, mm -hmm. it, taken this time for people to really realize you know that zero drop can be okay but like you said people need to have the right ankle mobility and everything else in order to pull it off yeah you know or they need to be a natural forefoot striker um but again i'm i'm okay if people want to try them i just think that they need to be prepared to deal with the sequela and mm -hmm. uh you know people are going to do what they want to do so yes um, while we're on the topic, this is what, this is what I'll run in today. It's a Brooks Levitate. I don't get paid, uh, <laughs> by Brooks. Um, maybe one day, but I think my, my times are only going to get slower. I just hit 40. Um, but yeah, I, I run in all sorts of different shoes. I went into the ultras and the, uh, the ones or the ons and, uh, I did zero, zero training. Now I grew up in vans, so you know, that was, a, that was the, the zero drop shoe of our generation, right? <laughs> yes. I don't know if I should include you in, in, in saying our generation. But uh, I, 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 I'm right there I with you, in, pretty sure. I, li I lived in vans, so I think that, you know, and I have a lot of ankle motion, so. Yeah. But yeah, there, there's so many different shoes out there nowadays. I just think it's important for clinicians to to be aware of shoe trends to when someone comes in to be able to look at their shoe and say, Hey, you know, I'm curious as to how you arrived at this shoe. Is it working for you? But we can take advantage of the placebo a little bit as clinicians. Um, if we can start calling out these characteristics, you know, so if you see something, you say, Hey, that's an eight millimeter drop shoe. It's very well manufactured. Um, it has this kind of brake pattern in the forefoot, you know, so on and so forth. So, yeah, off the topic a little bit, but, uh, you started with the, what you're running in today. Did you ever have that race with Ryan? No, no. He, 
I don't know where he is. I think he's in Argentina right now. Oh, he's in Buenos Aires right now. Yeah. I was supposed to talk to him on Monday and he canceled. <laughs> oh, he canceled? Oh. He, apparently his internet kept going down. Yeah. So, yeah, he's, uh, he's a character. He's, uh, he's a wealth of knowledge. Yes, he is. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Okay, so we covered kind of foot and ankle stuff. We talked about hip stability. Skin to pelvis and back a little bit. Um, obviously, any pelvic rotations can cause some dysfunctions down the leg. Um, how much are you addressing up the chain further, though, and looking at like low back problems when it comes to running injuries? Um, I'll tell you what, I, I do not see a lot of low back complaints in pure runners. I'll see some low back pain, um, non-specific low back pain in triathletes, which can stem from poor bike fit or just, you know, with long course uh, triathletes, just time in the saddle. Mm -hmm. um, you know, especially, and I try and encourage them to, to spend a lot of time on their road bike just because it's a little bit more forgiving um, in terms of, you know, how pitched forward they are. Um, I don't look at pelvic rotations. Uh, I used to spend so much time tinkering with that, you know, I've gone through a lot of different courses and, you know, the program at University of, uh, or Michigan State, Phil Greenman's, I used to be, you know, when I was younger, I was really zoomed in on that. You know, I, I don't look at it at all anymore. Um, and, and I find that it, it doesn't negatively impact, um, my, my work or outcomes with runners. Um, I think you can look at it extensibility, uh, and mobility of the hip in runners. But again, a lot of these running drills, you know, it's funny cause I've gotten pigeonholed into a running person. Um, but so many of these drills, it's about motor control and, um, and that ties right into the lumbopelvic hip region. So, you know, running's a head to toe activity. Obviously a lot of the forces are generated by the lower half of the body. Um, but now when I take someone through an orthopedic examination though, I'm going to screen for, you know, stuff that, you know, may start to have me bark up a different tree from a priority mm -hmm. standpoint. So, you know, I'll look at a lot of, I mean, just standing forward flexion. I'll look at, you know, passive straight leg raise. I'll look at, you know, Braggard's maneuver. I'll look at a slump test, yada, yada. But that's a very small percentage of the people that, you know, come to see me um, who, whose sole recreational focus is running. Mm -hmm. So um, do you look at that stuff a lot? Uh, you know, it's hit or miss. I typically will check it. It's hit or miss on whether there's a big one. What got me thinking about it was I just had one recently that his pain switched sides. And so all of a sudden then I got thinking pelvis. Well, then he told me he was, he's had this rib pain for the past several months. And so then I like pinpointed on his rib and like started looking at like rib and then QL stuff. And it was really interesting, but he emailed me, uh, actually just this morning it was just like since last time I've been feeling so much looser and so much better so it just kind of got me thinking about if you dress much pelvis and back area or not the one thing I should mention too is <clears throat> I have so many people that will come in and say I'm having you know low back pain and it's typically unilateral among runners and it but it's never there they think in their mind it's the back, but when you start saying, okay, like show me where your symptoms are, it's typically like that posterior aspect of the iliac crest. Mm -hmm. um, and I just start loading up the, the hip abductors and that seems to take care of it. 
Yeah. So Definitely. I am so I am so comfortable not knowing the exact source of something. You know? Yeah. If I if I know the entry point into loading them and they start to say, hey, I'm starting to feel better, you know, now granted there are certain cases where you need to, you know, really try to pinpoint the source. Um, but a lot of the times, um, you know, you may not know, especially, and I bring this up specific to the lumbopelvic hip region. Um, so. And I don't think a lot of times, you know, there's one specific, actually the majority of the time, I don't think there is one specific thing. It's just like you had said earlier, it's the coordination and motor control aspect that, you know, you just need to load it, correct that, correct that control and it kind of all falls into place. Yeah, I always, you know, I, when I teach this stuff, I say, look, we have all these different things. Let's put them on the table and then let's start taking things off the table. You know, so, you know, does a person have adequate strength? Check. Let's take it off. You know, um, is there an inflexibility issue? Very rarely do I think that's a case with runners. Mm -hmm. Take it off the table. You know, um, are they wobbly when you put them into single leg drills? Okay, maybe we need to do some, you know, neuromuscular control stuff. You know, but a lot of times you just load people heavy, you know, going from bilateral to unilateral, um, and that'll tend to wash out. So, um, again, it's just being very deliberate and systematic in, in your evaluation and follow-ups. Yeah, definitely. So, so well, as a runner, as an athlete listening to this in general, um, experiencing let's go knee pain down like what are some things that they can assess on their own in order to kind of determine if they need to go see someone if it's something that they can just address on their own like what's your suggestion there this is a tricky one because you know a lot of the times you need to make sure that you're not missing any red flags um yeah, you know, I've had people, I, I can think of cases when I was in New York where someone was told that they had patellofemoral pain and, you know, they had a staph infection. <laughs> it, people just dismiss runners, you know, because they think that they're, they're crazy. So, you know, I think you have to really find out what the highest level function that they're able to tolerate. Um, and if they're running, for example, and, and they're having low-level stable pain, getting back to that conversation, um, you know, I think a lot of the times they need to be put under greater load. And a lot of these things, these niggles and these aches and pains will start to take care of themselves. Um, I think if someone has unfamiliar, disconcerting pain, you know, with those specific adjectives, I think you reach out to someone, you know. Um, swelling is always a concern to me around the knee, especially if, um, you know, if there's a limitation in knee flexion range of motion because there's something intraarticular going on. Um, and I think that you have to look at di different demographics. I mean, is this, you know, a younger athlete? Um, is this a master's level runner? I mean, there's going to be different things that are, you're likely to find in these different populations. Um, so again, it's a really tricky question to answer. Um, I like a lot of, you know, in terms of just drills for runners to do, you know, I like, uh, I like to get runners doing goblet squats. I like to get them to do, you know, step up, step downs, lateral toe taps, um, bridging progressions, um, calf muscle complex drills. Um, but again, I, I'm so reluctant to offer up advice and without knowing a specific context because it's that one instance where someone 
you know, may have something cooking and they don't seek, you know, the help of a licensed medical professional that specializes in this region and they could have something sinister going on. So. No, I agree. I totally agree with that. The other thing too is, you know, you see the people that have had, you know, they're on their third injury and it could be same side or different side, but you know, same injury in several months. And I mean, that's, to me, that's definitely saying you need to go in and get something looked at because to be constantly injured like that is definitely not normal. Yeah. So, I mean, if you have a recurrent, so it, this sort of gets into something I'll, I'll talk a little bit about. And when I teach these courses is, you know, simple versus complex injuries. And, you know, that would be, you know, so recurrent injuries that, you know, perhaps have an inflammatory component you know, that's something to me, that's more of a complex situation. And it's probably likely to start affecting other regions in the kinetic chain. Um, so, but yeah, I get a lot of calls and messages from, like from Instagram to Facebook to just random emails. And I tell people, I'm like, I can't tell you what to do. I, I, I can make suggestions in terms of who to reach out to. Um, but I'm very reluctant just because I, you know, as a physical therapist, I need to see someone. Mm -hmm. So... Um, even though sometimes it's tempting to say like, look, this is probably what you're dealing with. So <laughs> yeah. I think tendon, tendon issues can be pretty predictable, um, or easy to, to say, it sounds like you're dealing with a tendon issue, but most running related issues, they should be having problems with running. If it's a running related injury, they should have problems with running. You know, not to say that those can't carry over to activities of daily living and stair negotiation, but you know, through and through running should, should, uh, sensitize them. Yeah, definitely. So, and I think, you know, the different tissue types have that different type of pain too, as yeah. far as bone versus tendon versus muscle as well. And so, um, you know, that can kind of help help a person decipher whether you know what they're dealing with as well if it's sharp or is it dull and like you said with tendons it loosens up over time so that kind of can go away and versus you know any sort of stress fracture that's just that constant pinpoint pain every single step yeah exactly i mean it just when you start hearing certain subjective reports from runners it should start saying okay let's talk a little bit more i mean if someone's talking about signs and symptoms consistent with a bone stress injury I'm starting to say, you know, let's look at your training schedule. You know, um, has this happened before? You know, perhaps you need to get a nutrition a nutritionist uh, in the mix or an RD um, if it's a, an adolescent female runner. You know, um, you really need to get a window into that runner's entire ecosystem um, to really be in a position to help them and realize a lot of times it may take a team approach, which is very challenging because people don't make the time to communicate amongst everyone to, to really help the runner. So, um, yeah, day's end, you know, as the saying goes for every complex problem, there's a simple solution that doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, and like, you know, history plays a big role into it as well. Um, just thinking back to a high school teammate of mine, he was a, um, cyclist and our junior year decided to, he joined the cross country team and just that pounding his legs weren't used to double stress fractures, both of his femurs. 
yeah, just turns out pounding. And so it's, you know, you have to definitely look into people's activity history too. And, you know, is running new to them? What, you know, what have they been doing? Yeah. And so in, it's sort of timely to bring that up because, you know, with the Tour de France, you know, a lot of the times, you know, these cyclists, I mean, cycling is considered a non-axial loaded sport, you know, with swimming being sort of a prime example. So, you know, their bones are never exposed to shock. So why would they adapt? So if they try and make, if a cyclist, unless they have a background, you know, as a multi-sport athlete, um, if they're, again, a pure cyclist and they're trying to make that switch to running, you can't rush that process. That's, I mean, that's a physiologic process that has to take place. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I always am talking to people. I mean, it would take an hour for someone to talk to me about my past medical history, sporting history, you know, being an overhead athlete, now being a bilateral overhead athlete with swimming, you know, with three surgeries, clavicle fractures, like... <laughs> You have to really, I mean, that first consultation with the runner, um, I don't even necessarily care to get into, you know, a ton of exercise and activity. I want to really make sure I have a good command of things. So when I, when we do go to get them out of the gates that we can get them out in a, in a timely manner. Yeah, exactly. And not keep them out too long, if yeah. at all. Cool. Uh, let's see. Just any final thoughts as far as uh, you know, anything important that, or anything you find important that we haven't discussed yet? Any prime topics that you seek clinically? Oh, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, I would love to get into this, um, this table test that I, I sort of accidentally stumbled upon seven years ago. It, it ties into my clinical decision or clinical reasoning process so much, but I, I need to go back and get a pursue a PhD on that because I, I'm very reluctant to discuss it um, because, you know, most of what we think we know is wrong. Um, but there's, uh, there, there's some really interesting stuff. And in the event that we sync up in a clinic, we can, we can go over it. It sort of pulls together all these different impairments that people are discussing in the literature. But I think the main thing is to runners have a tough time stepping back and looking at their situation very objectively and, and they're very emotional athletes yeah. and they're defined by their running. So I, I think as clinicians, we're always looking for, you know, that one offending tissue or we're trying to find, you know, some biomechanical fault, which may or may not have relevance. Um, we need to look at the runner as a person and we also just as much as we're helping them overcome a running related issue. Um, we need to also try and broaden their identity and, and get them thinking a little bit more about life beyond running. Um, and just also to really stay on top of, uh, workloads. You know, I, I have a lot of athletes that I, that I coach and, you know, when they first come to see me, I always say, Hey, I want you to, plug in your, you know, and I give them a two to three week period where I get to see how they approach their training before I start stepping in and trying to monkey with, you know, workouts and workload stuff like that. And it's just amazing. I mean, I, I can think of a, a woman I'm working with right now who's really kicking butt. Um, but when she first started plugging these workouts in, it was like Monday, she ran three miles. And then she wouldn't do anything for three to four days. Friday, she would run nine. And then on Sunday, run 11. And I'm like, wait a second. You know, so our bodies do very well and our tissues do very well with predictability. 
know, so I think with most runners, you know, having them run on non-consecutive days, let's say at least three to four times a week, I think is critical to get the, the running related tissues conditioned. Uh, if you're an elite, I think you can be running six to seven days a week, um, if not doing two days, but that takes a very long time um, to get there. Um, but I, the people who I see that are running infrequently, one to two times a week, tend to have a lot of issues just because their tissues never develop the requisite capacity to withstand, you know, you know, the stuff that we were talking about earlier. Um, and I, I think that every runner should be keeping a journal and a log to say, you know, how are they feeling? And I try and get all the athletes that, and really patients too. It's just looking at where they are on that spectrum, you know, to say, Hey, how was your sleep last night? You know, how many hours did you sleep? How motivated are you to train today? Do you have any residual soreness from the previous session? Do you have any stressors or things that may be going on outside of running that could enter the equation? Um, so it's getting into that concept of just readiness to train. You know, as opposed to just being so strict with the schedule, even if it's going to put you further behind the eight ball. Um, you know, it's, it's very tough to hop off the wagon. I'm guilty of this too, you know, where I just always want to train, train, train. So, but I, I think that with runners too, you have to completely rehab them. They, so many of these recreational uh, runners that seek our services they get back to participation. So, I mean, in terms of the spectrum, Claire, Dr. Ardain did a, an article in 2016, BJSM. There's return to participation, there's return to sport, and there's return to competition. I see too many runners at yo-yo between, you know, being in a rehab setting and return to participation. And if we would just be a little bit more diligent and make sure that we were, you know, on the same page with them and push that needle a little bit further, whether it's through, you know, lifting heavier, really making sure they're tolerant of plyometric activities, um, we need to migrate them out and get them back to re return to sport. So um, I see that all the time. I, I've been very fortunate over the course of my athletic career to have fallen into, you know, the hands of some really savvy clinicians. Um, but they always, well, we always tried to completely rehab me to the best of my abilities. And, it, and I think that stems from a number of issues. I think it's partially driven by insurance companies, um, considering, you know, failing to consider running as an ADL. Um, so that's a big one though, because these runners are, they're perpetually dealing with these, you know, these issues that never seem, they can never quite get over the hump. Mm -hmm. so well, I think you can almost go one step further with that too you know how many do you see that have been injured for six weeks or longer not running for six weeks or longer and then all of a sudden just want to pick up their training where they left off because yeah. they have a race in six weeks like you know a marathon or longer and yeah. you know people don't a lot of them not that they don't realize it but they have their goal of running that race and so they just get gung ho and hop in, you know, jump in a lot more mileage than they should off the bat. Yeah. I mean, I, when I had my clavicle fracture, uh, during a cycling accident in February, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't expose my shoulder to any jarring for about really six to eight weeks. And when I went back to running, I was doing, I did a, a fitness walking program, which is brisk walking 3.2, 3.5 miles per hour. 
And then I phased it into a walk run before I got back to consistent running. I didn't have a running related injury, but I knew that my bones and tendons and tissues had been underloaded during that time. So I couldn't just pick up right where I left off. I would have basically traded, you know, this clavicle fracture for, you know, a running related injury. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's classic. Well, I think as humans, if, we think that once pain subsided and if there was any swelling and that resolves that, you know, you're ready to start plugging back in. And I, I think it was Matt Walsh who um, was quoted as saying, you know, when the pain subsides or resolves, you're just getting started, you know? Um, so, and again, that's a general statement, but it's a good thing for a runner to hear. Yeah, so. definitely. And I like that you brought up, uh, a little bit earlier to all the other factors because yeah the sleep the external stressors the just not feeling up for training today that there's so many things that play into whether you should train if it's going to be a successful training day or if you have to back down what the plan is and I think a lot of people just stick with the you know this is what I saw my plan so that I have to do this not taking into account that you know, they were up with their kids all night and hadn't had an ounce of sleep and, you know, their bodies aren't prepared to go do that training. Yeah, I, I could speak to that firsthand. I mean, <laughs> because we, you know, we have a two and a half year old daughter and we have a, a baby boy who's just a, a day over three weeks. Um, I can't tell you how, how good I feel just dropping my, my volume, you know, so I, I would generally be training anywhere from 15 to 23 hours uh, over the course of a week in preparation. I was slated to do Ironman Canada, um, but I ended up deferring to next year. And it was such an easy decision for me, you know, because I was out of the pool for 12 weeks. You know, I wasn't getting a lot of sleep. I was traveling all over the place for professional reasons. And, but I've still been able to maintain a high level of fitness by, by pivoting there. And, you know, but I'm up five hours, you know, or five times a night you can't make meaningful headway, you know? So these are the conversations to say like, what the hell goes on in your life? You know? And when you can have open and honest discussions about that, then you can start saying, okay, I feel like I'm in a position to help you manage your workloads or help to provide the best rehab possible. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're kids in a candy store when it comes to, you know, running and triathlon, these endurance sports, it's this race, this, you know, this destination. Um, so I just laugh, you know, um, but you know, I, th those are the topics that I think a lot of clinicians don't and coaches don't get into discussing because it takes a lot of time. It takes, you know, having an open dialogue. Um, and if you're in a busy outpatient facility, forget it, right? Yeah. Forget it. So yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, Chris, if people want to get in contact with you how, or follow you on social media, where can they find you at? Um, I'm, I'm not going to give any contact information. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I feel like I, I've, I'm always answering emails. That's I guess, <laughs> right. the point in time that we, we find ourselves in. Um, so the easiest place to connect with me is um, through social media. So Facebook, I have my business page is Zarin PT. Um, I've been posting a ton of stuff on Instagram at uh, Zarin PT. Um, I keep a lot of the videos silent so people can plug and play um, they see, as they see fit and, and use their own verbiage. 
Um, but I would talk so much over the course of each video, it would freak people out. So, um, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons or rationale behind the drills that I'm showing. Um, but it, my website is also chrisjohnsonpt.com and I have um, a private Facebook group and sort of membership platform called the runner zone. And uh, you know, I would say that those are the best avenues. So, and if you're in Seattle, please reach out. Um, I don't do sit downs. I hate sitting down to, to meet with people uh, unless it involves alcohol. Um, but generally if someone wants to get out for a bike or run or a swim, come join me. Um, so yeah, that's it. And I'll be traveling around. I'm going to be, um, I'll be in Chicago in I want to say the first week of November and, uh, and I'm going to try, I'm trying to work with, uh, someone from uh, over in the UK to do something in New York city, um, in early 2019, but I'll be traveling a little bit in, uh, in 2019. I haven't posted my course schedule yet, but, um, so I sort of get sick of hearing myself talk. That's why <laughs> if someone wants to bring me in to speak, I'm like, yeah, of course. Um, but, you know, I'm not going out of my way to, to travel. Not with, uh, I like being in Seattle and hanging with my family. Oh, definitely. I can understand that with the two young kids. Yeah. So. Awesome. But, yeah, I'm generally pretty accessible online. Good deal. Well, thank you so much for your time today. really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. I, uh, I appreciate you having me on, Brianna. And, um, you know, keep up the good work. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find show notes at highlyfunctional.org, which has links to my website and my social media profiles, all containing more information to help you become highly functional. Until next time, go live and be highly functional.